Everybody, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. This is the podcast where Mike and I watch movies separately and talk about them on the show for the first time. We had a week off, but we are back. And we are back this week with a movie we've all seen. I don't know, Mike, how many times have you seen this? Eight. Eight? Uh, wow, you know it's eight. That's funny. I thought you were going to say like 100 or 200. I've seen this I've seen this way more than eight times. Today, we're going to do Planet of the Apes, the 1968 original, the greatest version, I think, of the Planet of the Apes. Directed by Franklin J. Schaffner, um, written by the novels uh, by Pierre Boulet, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, who also wrote what other famous novel? I forget. The Bridge of the Requai. Right. Yes, he wrote that. And Rod Serling helped with the adaptation of this movie. So there's a lot to say about this movie. Everybody loves this movie. So, Mike, part one, we always talk about our overall take. We just watch it again for the show. Go. I think that if we just talked about movies that we liked, but we didn't actually watch them. We would talk about the effects or the makeup effects in this movie. This is like another 15 minute film fanatic special where this movie is not hurt by its budget. It's not a high tech movie. Not at all. You, you but can the makeup's see that great. I, the performances that these guys get through the rubber masks is absolutely incredible. Charlton Heston almost looks wooden by comparison to some of the expression that they get on these uh, out of these ape faces, if you will. Yeah. Remember when you were a kid and the first time you saw what Roddy McDowell really looked like and what Kim Hunter really looked like? And you're like, that's Cornelius? That's Zira? And then, you know, that's Dr. Zayas? Now, of course, the, the great joke is, of course, you probably know this. Who was the original choice to play Dr. Zayas? Ah. Uh. You I'll give you a hint. The little up. man. The little man. Oh, Edward G. Robinson. Yes. And you can, if you go great. on YouTube, you can go, you can see the actual screen test where they were trying to figure out the makeup. I think the makeup in this totally holds up. I think it's great. No, I, I just mean that that's one of the only thing that works. You know, the, the effects of the uh, spaceship, you know, like uh, yeah. <laughs> a shaky cam spaceship. Uh, you know, the, the fact that they, it's so clear that where they land that, that they just have the actors kind of go around in circles, you know, and uh, around that, the, around that lake, the little build, it looks like, it looks like the, the apes from planet of the apes live in the Smurf village and it's about the same size. You know, they, I thought they, they lived live on like Tatooine. Some... They live, they, it's like star Wars. They live in a place where they're, they're more advanced, but yet there's no right angles. Yeah. It's, it, th there's a lot of, there's a lot of that stuff visually that doesn't add up. But the truth is, it doesn't hurt the movie. No, not at all. At all, not even one iota. To the degree that when a movie puts a lot into its design, and you see stills, I actually have started to realize how wrong that can go. Like when I think of a movie that has a great has great design, famous design, I think of the original Alien. Yeah, that's that's where they got a true visionary to to put work into the design. I'm so glad that nobody tried to do that for this movie because yeah. I think it would have interfered with, with the chemistry. 
and you have like the, you know, the Tim Burton disaster version of this and the later ones now, you know, with the one with James Franco and Andy Serkis playing um, Caesar, where, they, where again, you can, you can do all the CGI apes you want. You can have all that stuff. Okay. They look, they look better than the masks, I guess, but this one has such better performances that you care more about it because you, you know, you, even when you watch the, the new ones, you're like, you don't really think it's a talking ape. So, um, but this one, you, you just get drawn into it more. Cause I think it's better actors. I have never seen any of the CGI versions. Yeah. They're no good. Nor will I because, and, and not, not out of some hatred of CGI, but it's, it's planet of the apes with no twist. You already know the twist, which we'll talk about when we do part three. I had two thoughts watching this again for the podcast. The first was that it reminded me, this was one of my all-time favorite movies as a kid. Like if somebody said, what are the movies that hooked you on film? Like it wouldn't be like, well, it was it had to be a like samurai. Or of course, you know, was it a rules of the game? These things you come to later. It's like Jaws, Planet of the Apes, and, and all kinds of terrible movies you can't even remember. But I remember distinctly when I was, so I grew up in New Jersey, just like you. And uh, there was a thing on TV every day after school called the 430 movie. And it ran from like the, the late 60s to the early 80s. And you're younger than I am. So you probably missed this whole thing of the 430 movie. Yeah. Did, did you miss it? It was on WABC TV on Channel 7. And every day from 4.30 until 6, they would show a movie. But sometimes like they would just, it would take a week to show one movie. So they literally would show like Giant or The Bridge or The Kwai for a week. But they would have theme weeks like Monster Week. And they would have like um, Ben-Hur Week. And they always had Planet of the Apes Week. And that was one of my favorite weeks of the year was Planet of the Apes Week. Because I still remember the schedule. Monday and Tuesday was the original. The movie was broken into two days. Then on Wednesday, they would show Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Thursday was Escape and Friday was Conquest. And when I was a kid coming home from school, running home, like eating cereal, eating Lucky Charms, watching TV, like that was such a great, great week. I couldn't wait to get home, like get out of school, stop learning multiplication tables and just watch Cornelius. It was the best. Are any of the other ones good? You've never seen any of the other ones? You've never no. seen Beneath or anything like that? I've only seen original Planet of the Apes. Well... Well, you have a lot of watching to do, my friend. I mean, Beneath isn't so bad. Beneath is kind of bad. In Beneath, the, Charlton Heston's in it only in the very beginning and only in the very end because that's what he, he didn't want to do a sequel. And that's where you find out there's people living beneath the Planet of the Apes who worship the atomic bomb. And um, as the movies go on, they get to the point where at the end, Conquest is well, they blow up the earth and then con uh, but Cornelius and Zero escape on a spaceship at just the right time. They land on Earth, they have a baby named Caesar. They're befriend they're befriended by Ricardo Monteblon, who's like a circus impresario. Isn't that and con? Yeah, con, of course. And and Mr. Rourke from Fantasy Island. And then their baby Caesar grows up to to start the Planet of the Apes because the, the apes have been used as like as like a Media labor. But anyway, that's the first thing. The second thing that I was reminded of watching it again was that that opening half hour to this movie is like the opening half hour of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory or The Wizard of Oz. Like it reminds you there was once a virgin audience for this thing and they had to sit through that first half hour that now you're like, I don't know about you, but I'm like, oh, my God, where are the apes? Like, let's go. Like, throw the nets. Let's go get the apes out on the horses. But you have to watch him walk around, like leaving his captain's log and smoking his cigar and crash landing. I, I find that my generation has a phrase for that, which we call awesomely bad. And I find the captain's log to be awesomely bad. You know, the, the, does man still make war against his brother? That's like my favorite part. All right. In part two, we'll talk about our specific favorite parts. 
Okay, so in part two, of course, we like to talk about, uh, you know, key scenes. I think we're going to stick to favorite scenes on this one. So, Dan, what's your favorite scene? My favorite scene is after Charlton Heston gets shot in the throat and makes him a mute. Um, and Cornelius and Zira are interrogating him in their in their little study, and he has to write down his responses to them. I love that scene because I love how you have to wait. They ask him a question, and then he has to sit and write down his answer like he's playing Pictionary, and then he has to hold it up. Then they read it. Then they ask him another question. Then he gets another piece of paper. And I'm like, well, they're more advanced. They haven't invented the full sheet of eight and a half by 11 paper yet. They only have like little scratch pads. Or, or easier chalk. <laughs> right, exactly. But he's got to keep writing it down, and they look at it, they read it, they say it out loud. But there's something very satisfying and dramatic about that. I don't know what it is. It's like in one of, I don't know what movie we were doing where I said, um, I love when well, I, love, I love watching people type in movies and you see the type come up on the screen it's that same kind of thing and i just think it makes it's like a funny little moment of suspense but i love the relationship between those three and i before in part one you said the chemistry it, it's corny but it is true even in a movie like this like the three of them like they're really good together in their scenes what's yours yeah i i think that part of it and that kind of leads into my favorite moment is that um charlton heston is just he's just like he's like a black hole uh, just of attention. I don't know. You can't. You can't necessarily say that he's good. Although um, his his special appearance in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet is fantastic. As the player he just, king. He just pulls it out of nowhere. But you you can't necessarily say that it's a good performance. But it's an unbelievably watchable performance. Yeah. And another one of those kind of just awesomely bad moments that I think only he's capable of is um after he's found out that his friend has the lobotomy and they put him back in the cage. Uh, and the gorilla guard hoses him down. He goes, it's a madhouse, a madhouse. That's absolutely my favorite part. I could watch that on on a continuous loop. And it's it's just one of those moments that you can't, it's, it's a moment of real unironic drama that you can't put into a movie. There's some, there's something about that moment where he's he's trying to be real that of course strikes us as unbelievably over the top because it is unbelievably over the top yeah and it probably didn't even fit in the movie at the time but you couldn't even make that attempt today it wouldn't happen it wouldn't happen and it doesn't fit in the movie like there's no reason first of all he gets put in the other cage and i love how the cages and all the architecture is stolen from gilligan's island as well as tattooing but he gets put in and he says when he goes it's a madhouse like you're almost like why is he screaming that and i'm thinking like okay it's a late 60s it's kind of like this cuckoo's nest vibe like when he's on trial right it's like you know it's like you, you know he's got this late 60s vibe of being harassed by the man or by the ape right when then he, he, then he very then he very tenderly grabs the bar and he goes yeah. no i don't even have you <laughs> right but there's definitely some kind of thing about like institutional like some kind of um like that you know that this the um the stanford prison experiment or something where it's like authority you know you know the, the three judges when he's at the tribunal and they make him stand there like his stink is offending us and, the, and they, they they accuse him of heresy and all these things there's definitely something some vibe in there of like you know i was i thought of like i said cuckoo's nest i thought of jack nicholson trying to go up against against uh, you know the combine well i want to talk about the sacred scrolls but i do want to also talk about the end and i think they're together so we'll Go to that last section. Sounds good. Welcome back. In part three, we always talk about the title or the ending. Well, the title and the ending of this go together. So, Mike, what's your take on this great, great ending? There is, I mean, we've talked about some of the more farcical elements 
of the movie and why we still love it anyway, right? We can we can acknowledge that it's farcical and then also acknowledge that we like it and there's something compelling about this. And ultimately, that's what movies try to be. That's what I mean about Charlton Heston, right? Yeah. Like, I'm not saying that he should have won the Academy Award for Planet of the Apes. I'm saying there's something compelling about the amount of personal drama and personal... He brings a tone of high seriousness to whatever he's doing, right. even if that doesn't quite fit. Even or if they're it, throwing it, nets on him as he's running up and down outdoor staircases. Northrop Fry would say his mode does not match the, the mode of the film that he's in. Right. So that's so that's fun. But there's a moment at which the movie actually gets serious or makes a point that you don't expect. It sets you up to believe that it's farcical until they have Dr. Zayas tied up and he asks Charlton Heston a question. Do you remember what he asks? Um, not what will he find there? That's what the, that's what the, the kid asks him. Um, no, what does he ask him? If the humans were so advanced, why did they go extinct? Which actually is a it's a fairly brilliant question because you notice, for example, that the guerrilla guards they have their rifles, but they never fire at one another. <laughs> right. right? They, in fact, like the, the thing that's that seems to set them out is is they don't make war on one another. And the implication is that what they use the rifles and the nets and the cages for, and the reason they're not super sophisticated is because they only use force to keep the humans in line. Yeah, And so that seems barbaric until you realize that they don't do it to one another. And that's the real twist. Like when, when, he, when he tells them to take the sacred scroll um, out of his pocket, that's, that's the ultimate point of the movie, which I think is that if you could imagine a civilization where creatures that look like other creatures would not make war against one another, that that would actually be the great advancement in society, right? Because you're supposed to rhetorically ask yourself while they're walking around ape society, that it, it looks like they made it to about the 1500s. They have gunpowder and metal, <laughs> right. you know, but they, but they don't have any real technology right. and they can't even envision a flying machine or, or a spaceship or something like that. Uh, and of course you, you, get the famous twist at the end, which puts a very fine point at it. Yeah. And I think that that actually makes a very interesting counterpoint with the tribunal, as you were saying, right? Because in the tribunal, it's set up to be some kind of farcical, quasi-religious uh, kangaroo court. Right. And we're and it's a very easy thing to roll your eyes at how you can't countermand the sacred scroll. But at, at the bottom of it, Dr. Zayas's sacred scroll says, whatever you do, don't let the humans take hold again because you're advanced in a way that they'll never be. And, I, and I'm not necessarily even saying, you know, all, all Jane Goodallisms aside or, you know, right. a, you know, zoological things. Maybe about we should all be like her chimpanzees, you know, right? fighting each other. That's actually not a bad point. Right. And it's, and it's unexpectedly mm -hmm. good for the farcical nature of the movie that you've been set up to accept. Yeah, you could be advanced in ways other than technological. That's that's right. And and you're not set up to feel that way. I, I actually feel like this movie has a very long con in it. And part of the beginning is to get you to buy into the long con. Yes. Because that is a gut punch. Yes. And even I knew the twist, but I forgot about that Dr. Zayas quote. And watching it this time, I was like, oh, man, this movie had me dead to rights for like two hours. Yeah. And let, well, let's talk about the end, because that, that's a great point, too, about you said the gut punch, because I, I was I thought to myself, like, well, what are the other great 
shock endings in movies. Like everyone can name the ones they like, right? And this is certainly when when you're when you're a kid, and the first time the camera goes behind the torch, and then you start to see that, and you're like, whoa! There's that, that great moment. You almost wish you can get like the you could have Tommy Lee Jones from Men in Black erase your memory and have you watch it again as a ten year old mm-hmm. because it's the best surprise ever, right? It's 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 better than I am your father. It's it's so so great when you're a kid. And I thought to myself about movies we've done on the show that have great endings, and some of them are just endings where they're not really twist endings they're just ramped up intensity like the ending of die hard or something right or of like rear window or of jaws like those are those are great endings but they're they're not like pull the rug out from under you endings they're just ramped up versions so i started to think about movies we've done in here that have similar endings right so here's a quick list like don't look now right the wicker man seven right diabolique and and certainly this one where there's something about the shock of the center, like you said, the long con. And that's such a great thing for a movie. You said before, like this does what movies do really well. That's a great thing that movies do really well is the long, long con to get you in there. And even movies we haven't done on the show, like you say, The Sixth Sense or, um, you know, the, the Usual Suspects or something where, where the your whole understanding of what you've been looking at, it has been, you've been told that it's wrong or Shutter Island. You ever see Shutter Island? No. Yeah. Oh, it's great. We should do that one. That's a great one. But the whole idea is like everything you've been watching is wrong and you kind of vaguely know it, but then it's confirmed for you. And it's, it's just, a, it's just a great feeling to be fooled in that way. Yeah. It, it's almost as though I know I, I obviously I was sitting in place, but I felt like I'd moved and yeah. not. And again, I knew the, I knew the ending, but it's, it's the quote along with the ending. I feel like you have to watch it a couple of times even yeah. with the ending in mind to understand, but but this time it really got me, right? Because the, the question when they're doing the tribunal is who's on trial? Clearly he's not on trial, but there is actually something on trial. And the first time you watch it, you're, you're again, you're set, up, you're set up for this eye roll. And you think the point of the scene and part of the point of the scene is how pig-headed they can be. Yes. And aren't the people that you know that strike you like them, aren't right. they aren't they pig-headed and stupid? Right. But when you watch it over again, you you really ask yourself, what is this tribunal trying to keep out and is it worth keeping out? Right. It's actually a deeply subversive message and not one that you it's a it's a subversive and sophisticated message from an otherwise unsophisticated film with unsophisticated performances. Yes, because that's that's really well said, because you could watch this regardless of where you are in the political spectrum and think that Dr. Zayas is your opposite. Right. So you could be all the all the way on the right and say, oh, Dr. Zayas is, is like, a, you know, a left winger. You could be all the way to the left and say, oh, Dr. Zayas is like a total right winger. It's like, you know, because it's easy to scorn him when he crumples up the paper airplane and, he, and he, you know, he doesn't want them to see the talking doll. But certainly that's a great question. Right. It's like is is what does Dr. Zayas want and, and what does he what is he trying to preserve on this new planet? And not to put too fine a point on it, but that's, of course, how Charlton Heston feels when they land. Right. That when you re-listen to his captain's log, again, his performance is cheesy, but the the content of the performance is also cheesy. But in the same perspective, his opinion of human beings is not actually unlike the opinion in the Sacred Scroll. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a great conversation about Planet of the Apes. We hope you'll watch it again. It's on Criterion. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time.